Welcome to VPG's Virtual Water Cooler Chat Podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we are going to chat with Lisa Gable. Lisa is a former U.S. ambassador to the World Expo to obtain billions of direct foreign investments in the U.S. to help build Intel's brand management system as the company ultimately achieves a 73% share of the global semiconductor market. Lisa is a CEO, UN delegate, and Wall Street Journal USA Today's best-selling author. Lisa speaks and leads on partnership, mentorship, diversity, relationship building, and big ideas. Lisa strives to support the next generation of leaders and organizations that are solving the world's biggest problems. Lisa serves as chairperson for the Diplomatic Courier's Futuristic Think Tank, World, in 2050, and is a distinguished fellow at the Hunt Institute for Engineering and Humanities, SMU Lyle School of Engineering in Dallas, Texas. Lisa is a thought leader who focuses on creating innovative solutions. Fortune 500 C-Suites leaders bring Lisa in as she gets the job done, using her diagnostic diplomacy process by identifying the seven most common problems that are the underlying cause of every challenge. From healthcare and technology to geopolitical discord, Lisa is a five-time award-winning WSJ and USA Today best-selling author of the incredible strategic handbook, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. Let's get started. Good morning, Lisa. So glad to have you here with us on Virtual Water Cooler Chat. How are you today? I'm doing just great. It's so lovely to be with you. I am just so grateful that you said yes to this. And uh, I've been looking forward to this and actually did some homework while um, I was having breakfast this morning. And I listened to a couple of your other podcasts. So let's dive right in. I appreciate that. (laughs) Can you tell us the essence of Lisa Gable? Well, I am somebody that when I see a problem, I just start twitching unless I can help fix it. And I've been that way my entire life. In fact, during my childhood, my parents would have to keep me from getting involved in solving problems. They're like, it's not your problem. But but I hate to see people struggle. I hate to see things not work well. And so that is the fundamental part of my DNA. Awesome. If you have to use like three words to describe yourself, what would be the three words? You know, I would say diligent is absolutely one. In fact, when I was in high school, they created a whole elective around that because they said I was so diligent. Uh, uh, Dedicated would be another piece of that, which is slightly different and creative. Now, I understand that you were um, the ambassador to the World Expo. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? And also, I was very intrigued about your $10 tuna fish story. (laughs) Well, it's uh, it's wonderful to have had that incredible role. It's the uh, World Expo is basically the rebranding of the World's Fair. It's been going on since the Eiffel Tower was built and the Palace of Fine Arts. And uh, it's held every five years in a foreign country, or we've actually hosted it here in the United States many, many years ago. I was the first woman ever in the history of the World's Fair before and after my service that has been asked to uh, lead the U.S. effort. And it entails putting on a a diplomatic engagement through the U.S. Pavilion, which is a physical structure. Ours was actually designed uh, by people who had been part of uh, Disney. And so we had a theater in the downstairs 
upstairs about Benjamin Franklin and literally your seats shocked you as the lightning came down and we had rain that came down on people's heads. So you can manage after I took a lot of VIPs through the pavilion in one day that my hair was kind of looking a little bit messy. But the other aspect of it is that there are 200 countries. And so the diplomatic engagement to uh, promote not only public diplomacy, but also business is a core fundamental part of the fair. Now, you asked about the $10 tuna fish sandwich. So here's the underbelly of the fair, which is that my predecessors had had extensive inspector general's report. Uh, because it's so complex to manage. People had gotten themselves in trouble. And my immediate predecessor was actually indicted for his uh, for his misuse of funds while he was a U.S. ambassador. In fact, he set up a foreign bank account and the FBI came to the country where he was and said, you know, Mr. Ambassador, you can't have a foreign bank account as a U.S. Uh, representative. And when they came back, that foreign bank account was much bigger and he'd hired all of his family members. So lots of things that happened. Congress decided in 1998 uh, to withdraw any public funds being used. They said it had to be 100 percent privatized. And uh, no one told me about this. It was all under undercover, under uh, Inspector General's reports. And so I was on my way to sign a bilateral agreement the day before I'd been on TV with Colin Powell and the ambassador from Japan to the United States and Dr. Toyota, who was the chairman of Toyota at that time. Uh, we had announced the U.S. participation. We'd signed one half of the agreement. And as I was getting out of the cab at Dulles Airport, I received a call from the State Department. And they said, due to the past issues, legal issues of your predecessor, we can't figure out how anyone will pay for your trip. And I said, you mean that trip that I'm going on where I land tomorrow and I go immediately to the embassy for an event and I sign a bilateral agreement? They go, yes, that trip. And uh, my husband and I hung up the phone. We talked about it. And we said, well, we can't embarrass the president of the United States. We can't embarrass the United States. We'll pay for it ourselves and we'll figure it out. But after I did the signing, while all of my peers were running off to uh, fancy dinners, having the finest whiskey, I went and found uh, sandwiches on the Ginza. It cost $10. If anybody is going to Japan and they're wondering how you can eat uh, effectively but cheaply, talk to me. And as I was sitting there eating my $10 tuna fish sandwich, what I was contemplating is how was I going to execute uh, this mission? How was I going to do so by both raising the money, but ensuring that it was spent in the manner that the U.S. government needed it to be spent with appropriate fiduciary and governance uh, provided to our engagement at the fair? And most importantly, how was I going to make it successful and create jobs for the American people? And uh, and I, I wound my way through the incredibly Byzantine process of the State Department, uh, hired a personal attorney. We investigated it quite extensively, and I was truly the first ambassador to a World's Fair in about 20, uh, 20 years uh, that not only didn't have an inspector general's report, but I was actually lauded on the floor of the Senate for figuring out how to do this right. So I'm very proud of that, but uh, I ate a lot of tuna fish. Uh, if I may, I have a similar story, not about tuna fish. So I used to be a case manager at an IP boutique firm. Part of the job that I do is to manage depositions and like coordinate logistics. And when you take depositions in Japan, it has to be taken at the U.S. consulate in either Tokyo or Osaka. 
So one year, this is after my dad had passed in 2017. I think this is maybe around 2018. I was responsible for getting like deposition visas for the attorneys, the team, and everybody to get to the right um, location, pay for the very expensive fees for the U.S. consulate for the deposition rooms, coordinate all the logistics in, with our Tokyo office. And three days before the team's departure, meaning the attorney's team departure, um, I had to figure out exactly how to coordinate the logistics of getting witness binders and depot exhibits for the attorneys in Tokyo and before they go. And in the past, I have actually coordinated logistics for arbitration, which is only a few days, but you don't. it doesn't involve multiple witnesses. So at some point, three days before the attorneys actually leave, my partner walked into my uh, office and I was on the phone. Well, after he entered, I hung up and I said that, yes, what do you need? And then he goes, would it be helpful for you to be in our Tokyo office? And this is three days before. And if I were to say yes, I would be in Tokyo for three weeks. Wow. Yeah. And then also my mom lives with me. So that means that in the midst of trying to figure out how to coordinate at the, all the logistics and the prep and getting the witness, you know, um, meetings and stuff like that, I also have to figure out who is going to take care of my mom because she doesn't drive. So I said, I knew that I had to go. So I said yes to them. And then the rest of it, just like, you're just going to have to figure it out. I wasn't at the Dallas airport at that point, but I purchased the airfare and I did not purchase business class because it was very expensive. And the client's pretty big, but I didn't feel like that I wanted to like pay for the business class for that. I've actually, in previous experience, I have actually seen, you know, the staff actually was riding uh, like business of first class, while the managing partner of a class of a, a firm actually was going into economy to save some uh, money for the client. It leaves some residual images that you mm -hmm. really want to be very careful about the, you know, how you want to save the, the money that's not yours, you know? Right. So, so I said to them, I said, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, I funded the money and I knew that I was going to be getting expense anyway. So it was a little bit different situation than yours. So I funded the money and bought, bought like the economy class, but I, for myself. And then after that, I finally had a chance that I, I worked with my team to figure out who is going to be doing what. So before I go to, I need to be there one day prior to the team, the attorneys get there. So I could coordinate logistics. And when I got home, I finally was like, I need to figure out exactly, you know, who to take care, who will take care of mom. So I asked my mom, she's now 77, but at the time she's like, you know, um, so I asked, I said to her, it's like, I'm going to Japan on Sunday. Would you like to come with me? She's, she was like, how long would we be there? I said, three weeks. I think, I think three weeks. So I'm not sure. And then she was like, okay. <laughs> so because you know we are already paying for for the event i mean and i was like how do i actually pack the lightest you know because it's three weeks it's a lot of clothing but if i don't stay at a hotel i stay at an airbnb and if my mom is there she could actually you know i will pay for her part you know that there's nothing i keep that money very very separate so i'll pay for her part that she can actually enjoy japan 
and she would go to the groceries and buy all of this really neat stuff. We did go to Ginza, but we did not get tuna fish. But most of the time, the grocery store in uh, Tokyo, they have just amazing selection of food. Like they would have like okwa, sesame oil, so light and very, very healthy, you know. So that's kind of how we did our Japanese trip a little differently than yours. And I thought I would like to share. It sounds fabulous. And I have to say, if uh, my husband is a good cook and he greatly enjoyed cooking in uh, Japan once we had our apartment there. Uh, and you're right. There's nothing like a Japanese grocery store. They're beautifully, beautifully laid out, gorgeously packaged and uh, and truly the best stir fry you can ever make. So you were lucky to have mom cooking for you. Yeah, she's still cooking. She actually just left on a vacation with her siblings. So um I was um, Uber driver her to my uh, uncle's house. And then now I have a week to myself. Now let's talk about your book. And I have a copy of it. Yes, you have many copies. Thank you. Yes. And I am interested, it says, challenge your crisis, Lisa Gable. Want to talk about that? I do. So where that comes from is when I was uh, 29 years old, I was working at Intel Corporation and I was a middle manager and I was having a really difficult time. I had a boss who was challenging um, and, you know, staff wise, I didn't have the support I needed to execute the program that I was doing. And I, I called my dad. What do you do when you're in trouble? You call your dad. And my father is an executive and I was asking him, you know, really for some advice. And he wrote me this beautiful letter that I have kept on a Bible on my desk for 30 years now. And so I pull that letter out occasionally. But one of the things he said is, challenge your crisis. And you do that by counting your blessings. You do that by thinking through all the wonderful things that you have, the opportunities that you have, and where you have the power as opposed to focusing on the negative. And the other key part that he brought forward to me is that the biggest stumbling blocks he'd ever encountered in his career, in his life, always led to the greatest opportunities. And so what I internalized is that I actually can work my way out of a box. And I do so by focusing on the things that I can affect. I stop focusing on the things that I can't. And I challenge the crisis I'm in by looking around me and saying, what can I do to solve this problem? What tools do I have in my toolbox to make a difference? And that has been a core part of what led me to write the book and actually inspired different aspects of the book. And the entire quote is actually in the first chapter. I listened to both the audiobook and also the uh, hard copy. And I now have about 50 some 50 plus books autographed by you. <laughs> and we're going to use that as a book signing event in, on February 8th of next year. Can you talk about the four steps of your book, Turn Around? Yes. So um, really building off of my, my father's quote, and, and applying that to what is it that I do when, I, when I'm brought in to turn something around. And the first step is visualize the future. Stop focusing on where you are today. Literally close your mind and think about what do I want this to look like? Like if I could envision my perfect world scenario, what is that scenario? Step number two is to audit the past. And that's what we had to do at the World's Fair. 
uh, is that I had to go back and figure out what went wrong. Why was it that the perfect future doesn't exist? What are those barriers that currently are within the system or within that under organization? What's the underlying cause of the disease that that organization has? And identifying what has to be fixed in order to reach that perfect future. Once you've done that, it allows you to go to step number three, which is you begin to build a past from where you are today to where you want to get to. And that requires ranking and rating. You can't be all things to all people. One of the best lessons I learned at Intel Corporation under Andy Grove, who was a very famous CEO of Intel, became a man of the year while I was working there, is that you need to rank and rate things. You need to get rid of things. You need to focus on job number one. What's the number one thing I need to do in order to to meet the future goal that I have? And by doing that, it allows you to look at every single step in your process and go, do I need this or don't I need this? Is this is it not important? Is it going to get me to where I need to go? Is it the key element that's going to help me get around those barriers? And once you build that process, once you have those decision trees that enable you to go, uh, I'm headed this direction. Does it allow me to do this? Yes. So I keep moving. Does it not allow me to do this? No. So I get rid of it. Then you can move very, very quickly. And that's really the key is that you can actually do this process quite speedily. I have normally managed to at least get through the initial aspects of a turnaround in the first six months. By no means is it there. But if you put together the steps that I I put in place in the book and you go through that very, uh, very calculating and specific step-by-step process, then you can run very, very quickly. You have everybody on board. You have gone through and talked to people about what didn't work. You've explained why you need to make the changes that you need to make, and you run as fast as you can in order to achieve that future vision. That's your decision tree. Yep. I love decision trees. If you've got engineers listening, I am a big fan of decision trees because it allows you to boil all the key elements down to one sheet of paper. And so when you're sitting in a meeting and people are going around and around and they keep discussing things, you go, you know what? Let's go through the decision tree. What are the decisions we need to make? Does it get us to the end state that we want? And if it doesn't, it becomes very clear that you have to get rid of it. And that is uh, something that is a key element of manufacturing. It allows you to leverage all of your assets to have the highest production value at least cost. And that's truly what everything's about. So I'm intrigued by, you know, most management sort of consultants, they would talk about the 80-20 Pareto principle. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that you have sort of discussed about 60-40. Can you tell us <laughs> a little? Washington. <laughs> yes. So uh, in 2009, I developed the 60-40 rule. And I was working for the food and beverage companies. And we were uh, in a situation where uh, we were uh, facing some potential taxes, litigation um, around salt and sugar. Uh, secondarily, as the public health community felt that uh, the rise in obesity uh, was related to the food that people were eating. And so we had an administration that that wasn't getting along well with the, with the food and beverage industry. And so I developed what I call the 60-40 rule. And you may know the 80-20 rule is something that I learned from Ronald Reagan. If you can agree with somebody 80% of the time, you can do business. 
business. And that was the uh, that is what he used with his Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, for them to find ways that they could move forward. But Washington's gotten very acrimonious. And so when I sit people down in a room, we literally take a whiteboard and we say, okay. Let's talk about the principles that we will never agree on, because that truly is the split, the how to get there. Do you use the arms of government? Do you use taxation? Do you use litigation? What do you use? Or do you use the market to drive people forward? And so we itemize those things. We will never agree on these things, but let's talk about what we can agree on. And when you start to then outline the areas where you can agree, then what you discover is that you've got plenty of stuff where you can make a change. And you have that ability where you've acknowledged where you will never agree, but you've acknowledged where you can agree. And you take all of your time and effort not to try to change somebody's mind because we are philosophically designed. We base our decisions sort of on on political theories that are important to us. And we instead focus on the 60%. And I've done this in business. I've done it in philanthropy. I've done it in government. The reality is I have never found a situation where I couldn't find 60% of things that I could agree on with someone and find a path to at least accomplish primary objectives within that construct. What's interesting is that once you do that, then people's ability to see where they may be able to make changes within that 40% that you've left in your bin list that evolution does happen. And so where we saw in the food and beverage industry is that we took a relationship that was acrimonious in 2009. And by 2016, you had food and beverage, public health, um, the administration, localities working together to focus on how we bring better for you products to the consumer. And the consumer was our partner within that. Uh, We made a decision to reduce calories in the marketplace. Uh, We ended up producing 6.4 trillion calories and 35% of the food sold in the United States. And the consumer drove 99% of sales during that five-year period of time was actually for those new products or for those reformulated products. So, you need to you need to find a place you can agree and just stop focus on the stop focusing on fighting with each other. I believe that there was um, in a in a podcast interview someone was talking about disagreement commitment. Do you remember oh, disagree and commit? So that's yes. okay. Andy Grove thing. Yes. So uh, Andy Grove, who was CEO of Intel, he did you know he talked about job one, but the other thing he talked about was disagree and commit. And it became the Intel philosophy. And what it means is that you can go into a room and you can fight it out. And trust me, Andy was scary in this Hungarian accent. And I was, you know, 24 years old. I thought he was scary. Maybe other people didn't, but I heard even senior executives did. Uh, But you could fight it out in the room. But what Intel made a decision is that when everyone departed the room, we departed in lockstep because what we agreed is that we would disagree on certain things. But we would continue to move forward on what was the decision that had been made as to what was best with the company. I will tell you, I never appreciated it more than when I worked with another company many years later that was really known for being passive aggressive. And the bottom line is, if you're passive aggressive, you cannot build uh, cohesiveness within your plan. You can't fill, uh, you can't build a relationship with your peers because you don't trust them. And the the reality is we're not all going to agree on everything, 
But if you're part of a team, disagree, commit, move forward. Don't backstab your other employees as they're moving through and executing on their job. That's fundamentally all it's about. So let's talk about leadership a little bit. And when you talk about passive aggressiveness, I actually had one of the, so historically I have been somewhat controlling, trying to, and at times I could be a micromanager because, you know, when you're dealing with like high stake litigation and you're the one that sort of like, I don't like to use managing your team because people are not like towels. You cannot just right. manage them. So like when you leave the team, but you're not quite afforded the coaching to go from sort of like middle manager and then to be like leaders, because now yes. you're responsible for the your pro you are your product is actually the responsibility of how well you coach your team. And sometimes, like, you might not actually have avoided that particular experience. So, you know, we all get promoted to be in a position because of our own work product. But right. when you become a leader, that is a completely different ballgame. And I'll tell you, um, I used to, would I would really kind of sweep it under the rug before. But I had um, an experience, this is during my current um, sort of leadership and I had teams that team members that will basically email me and say, I need to speak with you. I'm like, okay. So I felt like I would be calling the carpet on the carpet. I said, I don't appreciate your passive aggressiveness. It's like, funny. I have never been accused of being passive aggressive. If anything, everyone has always accused me of being aggressive. <laughs> so tell me where you come up with this. Maybe we need to agree on a definition. So then we had a talk and, you know, I listened to the person and part, part of the problem is that being a leader in a social media age, that it's really difficult because we don't always have, especially with the younger generation, we might not always see eye to eye because our values are so different. So how do you coach a team or mentor a team that actually has some fundamental differences? So I decided that I have two choices. One is I'm the boss. I, this is not in alignment with my value. I will just have to re sort of shift this and maybe let the person go. But then it really bothered me like for, for that particular reason because I feel like that I would be sort of like doing what I have been doing before. And Yes, I am completely justified to do it as the CEO of my company, but I decided to take a different route. So I asked the person, do you have 15 minutes to meet me in person? I don't want to. I need to, because I need to see like the body language and so we can actually talk. So we met and I can tell that she was nervous mm -hmm. and we chatted and I said, Tell me, why did you decide that it is you know, appropriate for you to call your boss to say all of these things? And then she was like, well, I knew immediately after I said this, I think that I made a mistake. I said, well, I don't know. I think we both made mistakes. You know, for you to be like calling me out like this, I have something to evaluate. That is not a proud moment of my leadership. <laughs> but let's talk it out. 
So we did talk and 15 minutes turned into one hour because for that 15 minutes, I really honestly wanted to evaluate that this is something that is worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And I saw the sincerity in that person. And now she turned around and is one of the person that I actually, I mean, I do like Zoom um, mentoring, coaching. And so I have individual sessions with each person on my team. So that's why I was like, oh, turn around, you know. So your book title is so appropriate. But one of the things that you always talk about in your podcast is humility. And mm-hmm. it's difficult to distinguish when you have to be humble and because some people would put you down if you are humble and they think that you this is because of a lack of self-confidence but right. uh, in my experience the people that are that have the highest integrity are the people that are most humble I wonder what is your thought on that well, it's, I mean, humility is is a key part of leadership. And the reason I bring it up is, as you know, in my book, I talk about seven things that uh, I usually find within a turnaround situation. And uh, there is a consistent factor that shows up everywhere, and that's hubris. And hubris is when you put your own interest above the interest of the organization. It's when you become so overly confident that even if all of the indicators are demonstrating that you should not go that direction, you don't listen and you plow your way way through. And it's a disaster. And we see that with our national leaders. We see it within uh, government leaders, business leaders, and philanthropic leaders. And so there has to be a blend of humility. You have to be able to say, I'm wrong. And you have to be able to say, I did the wrong thing. You're right. I actually am. I am actually incorrect in that. Uh, Being able to own that and have the ability to vocalize it is is inspiring to the team because they realize that you will listen to them. Now, one of the things that you and I both know, and I and I think it's a fine line, and I've been guiding another young person through this, is that you come from a legal background, and I come from a background of doing trials that focus on fiduciary and governance. And so there are organizations that truly do not understand where they can't go where you can't go legally. There are certain things you can't do. And so one of the aspects of a nonprofit is the public trust. Public trust, as you know, is a legally defined term because the public has to trust that if they give you money, that money is going to be used effectively and efficiently and that you'll have governance systems and fiduciary systems in order to manage how their money is spent. And it doesn't matter if they gave you a million dollars or if they gave you $5, you have to fulfill their trust because it's their money. And we forget sometimes that, as you said at the very beginning of this, and it's one of my favorite terms, it's other people's money. You're dealing with other people's money. It doesn't matter if it's your customer, your consumer, your business partner, or your donors, then you need to have the right systems in place. And I think that that is one piece of the puzzle where we have to educate people in a kind way, but when they're not getting it, there is a point where you do have to aggressively lay down the law and say, you can't operate outside of these parameters. There's actually a legal reason as to why not, but here's what we're going to do in order to meet the question that you've had. And so that takes humility, right? You can pound people over the head, but it's very rare that you can actually persuade them to do what you need them to do if you don't take the time to explain it to them. 
That's perfect. Want to talk about reverse mentoring in your experience? Yeah. So I, you know what, I'm, I'm 59, I'll be 60 in March and I use a lot of reverse mentoring now. I, I mentor people in their 20s, 30s and 40s uh, because I do believe that uh, as we approach 2030, which is a key point within the UN uh, goals, but also in 2050, which is uh, the name of a uh, think tank that I'm in charge of is the world in 2050 and all the changes that will take place. We need each generation to be successful. What I learned through that is each generation knows things I don't know. And so right now I'm relying on a group of women who are about 15 years younger than I am, who are and, and also a, a man, um, who are experts in artificial intelligence. Mm. They're teaching me what I need to know about that. I rely on year-olds for helping me understand the world of social media and how communication needs to be altered in order to uh, take advantage of social media and also understand understand where they're coming from, how they see the world, how they get information and how they process information. And so as you get older, it becomes more important than ever to actually identify things. It's funny, I've been on this WhatsApp conversation today with a group of women who've all become trusted voices or top voices on LinkedIn. I'm like, how are you doing that? I did everything you all told me to do and I'm still not getting that badge. Um, The reality is they're younger than I am. They're part of all of this uh, framework that LinkedIn is using to grow its business, they figured out something that I haven't figured out. And so I'm going to be learning until the day I die. It's not just going to be, you know, having um, when I'm elderly and having my, my, you know, teenage grandchildren explain to me how to make my television work, which is probably something they will end up having to do. Uh, but it's also making sure that I am staying current with technology and with those who are creating that technology, because I'm on the elder end now. So I need to learn what who, who these uh, brilliant people are that are coming up after us. Awesome. The concept and the theme that I've seen you talk about in some of your podcasts is diversity and how it empowers. Can you talk a a little bit about diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, and accessibility and what it means to Lisa Gable? It means a lot of things. I've worked in the rare disease and chronic disease space. And so there is the uh, there are the physical limitations that someone faces that are not necessarily seen by others. One of the hardest things that we face today is that people with a rare disease or a chronic disease and has one, my daughter, I mean, my husband has three, my daughter has two. Um, it's not something that you people actually can see, right? You're not, you don't have a disability that requires you to have a a physical instrument that allows you to function. It's all something that you have to live your life with a reduced capacity to do certain things. So that's one aspect of diversity um, and and appreciating that. Uh, The second aspect of it is socioeconomic as well as ethnic and different backgrounds that we all have. And again, we make assumptions about other people. Um, I like unconscious bias as training because it really shows you that you can look at someone and you make a determination as to what's going on in that person's life. But the reality is you will never know what's going on in that person's life. You will never know where that person and the hurdles that they faced. And it's in empathy and, and being focused on ensuring that everybody has a seat at the table, that we understand the challenges that are unique to certain people that other people are not facing is very important. And the third piece of it is diversity of thought. And I am very disturbed today in America that we are so black and white about people. I was at a, a meeting day where we were talking about the fact that if someone expresses a political viewpoint that's different than you, we now categorize that person as bad, 
no one is bad. We're all Americans. And what 9-11 showed us is that when bad things happen, honestly, the people who were getting out of the tower, the policemen and the, the firemen who were going in to rescue you, did you really care how they voted on a, a, like abortion or taxes? You didn't. You were all coming together to save each other's lives because you are Americans and that is what we do. And so we need to really look at those three categories of conversation and ensure that inclusivity means that we are open to people whose opinions are different than ours, that we don't prejudge people. It's a Bible verse, judge not that you be not judged. And secondarily, that we recognize that what's going on in a person's life. And so be kind. That is so true. And this kind of uh kind of brings back memory of um, my podcast interview with Ms. Seema Shavi, and she is also a chief member, and she is the CEO of Women Welfare Health. Um, she is uh, Pakistanian in sort of like heritage, and I'm Chinese, I'm Chinese-American, and we were both talking about our experience and also like, you know, racism, either institutional racism or not, um, and how 9-11 and COVID impacted both of our sort of uh, experiences, because, you know, in her experience then, you know, she was really fearful of the terrorists that her countrymen may actually hurt her family because they wouldn't know any difference. And in my experience, it's like, you know, when we had... Um, coronavirus somehow correlated with Chinese. And my mom, I took my mom to with my friend to the National Aquarium at, at, the, at Baltimore. And she coughed and some kids were like, kind of screaming the coronavirus, something like that, and made her feel very uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's like, that is something that while we, we want to in, kind of uh, increase the awareness, and hopefully that will change. It is still something that lives very consciously in our mind, especially when we are sort of even Asian Americans, uh, we are still very much aware of it. So just thought that. Yeah, and it's interesting right now, when you really look at the, and I look at a lot of political polling, what you discover is that even controversial issues, 70% of Americans agree that they can find a point of agreement, percent. And yet right now we have everything operating on the on the sides. And I think uh, one of the things that we have to do is to approach each situation with a thought that maybe we agree on 70%. And that it doesn't matter who that person is or what they're coming from. It matters on how you enter into the situation. We can control how we enter into something. Um, and uh, and we can compare notes on when we've been treated badly. Uh, and uh, I mean, I had a situation with my daughter. As I said, she has rare disease that no one had identified until much later in her life. And I'll never forget in a hospital where she was having, she was a little kid. She was very sick. And she was, they were having a very difficult time getting one bodily sample from her. We'll just put it that way. And the nurse was so mean to me. She was so mean to me. Control your child. And I and I didn't know why my child, it's taken 20 years of doctors to understand why she was reacting and ways she was reacting. It actually had to do with the disease that was discovered later in life. But that nurse was just making an assumption that I was a bad mother. 
And I'll never forget that. She and I talked about it the other night. So there you have to assume, I always assume someone's good. I always do. I always assume that someone is operating from the best intent possible. And when I do that, it really changes the way in which I interact with people. The last question that I have for you is that you talk about the three stages in your life, the credentialing, impacting, and also your preferment stage. Yes. In your preferment stage, can you give us a little bit of uh, inspirational words on how women can empower each other? Well, the performance stage means that I am at a place where I do the things I prefer to do, right? And and I didn't dream up that term. Someone else did. Yes. <laughs> because you, you no longer have obligations. Instead, what you're doing is you're making a determination about how do I want to spend my time? And I value my time. And so I define this stage of life as uh, that I am focused on trying to help the next generation of leaders who are solving the world's most complex problems. And as I stated earlier, in 2050, I'm going to be 86 years old. So I sure as heck hope the rest of you are out there solving the problems. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I, I am not going to be the one out there doing it anymore. So I need to get you trained up so I am comfortable. Uh, but having said that, the piece of that is that it's no longer about me climbing the ladder. It's about where I invest in other people. And, uh, you know, I was so excited to meet you. I was so honored when you were uh, buying my book because I'm, I'm investing in you, right? You are the next generation of leader who is making changes. And it is time to flip that switch. And I really saw that with my dad. My dad retired when he was 60, built an organization from scratch to being one that employed thousands of people. And uh, and he, when he retired, he focused the next 25 years on investing in other people. And as we, um, and I'll have a post about this on Thursday, uh, but as uh, I was receiving letters after he died, the letters weren't about the success that he had. And he'd done something no one else had done before in a category no one else had done it in before. They were all about the things he'd done for other people. And um, and you saw his legacy based on the quality of life that those people had due to his interventions. And that quality might have been that they had a wonderful family. It may have been that they'd achieved personal success. It may be that they had gone through a very a significant health crisis, but managed to persevere through that crisis. It's different for everybody, but that truly is my guiding light right now. And I think it's the obligation that I have because God gave me a lot of gifts. And so it's time for me to give those back. Thank you for saying that and thank you for investing in me and also my platform. One of the things is that in 2017 is when my dad died. So there were a lot of uh, similarities. My dad, while well, we we're immigrants, and my dad and mom, they came here and they want to give us the best opportunity. So they moved to Lawrence, Kansas to open a Chinese restaurant. I'm like, how did you come up with that? <laughs> I still do. But, you know, it was actually a very interesting point because if it weren't for that, I'm not sure that I would actually have a chance to grow up in a college town. And I wouldn't know, I would not, I may not have been, have a chance to meet some of my professor. And one of them was, um, he was a Harvard Law graduate and he always told me to go to law school and I keep telling him no. So I chose to do graduate 
study instead. So I was in political science and East Asian languages and cultures. Not something that your stereotypical Asian American woman will do. So I thought my parents for that, and they want me to go into accounting. I'm like, no, my professor want me to go into law. No. So now what do I do, right? But one thing that I really wanted to, um, you know, mentoring someone else, especially the next generation is so important because when, especially when they're younger and coming from a different culture or having that cultural soundtrack that is not conducive to, is not quite compatible with the mainstream, um, it's so difficult because like, for example, my mentor taught me two things. Um, two things that one, I actually take it quite well. The other one I haven't been able to. And the first thing that he taught me is nothing venture, nothing gain. Even from that point on, like I was in um, senior year and he was like, I'm going to go and um, be a fellow at Saratoga Springs. I need someone to watch my, uh, basically house it in my place. I'm like, but there's a lot of other people that you could ask. But it's like, I'm asking you. Like, but why? <laughs> you know, so I have all those things. It's so important for us to sort of like let, those who believe in know that you know what you got this yep that is the one that i've actually quite taken that quite well the other one is let things roll off my back so be a duck and i have not always accomplished that sometimes things will like just bother me but he says just let it roll off your back you know and so those are the that's the second lesson that i'm trying to learn better but in while you're investing in me, I'm also very proud that I'm able to be in a position through my clients supporting me so I could actually make a living and I could actually help the next generation. And you are absolutely right. When they are teaching me about YouTube, social media, I was like, how did you do that? Can you repeat that procedure? And when they're talking about storyboarding and everything, I was like, we talk about storytelling all the time these days, right? You got to tell your story, but we're working on the DIA animation. And so the, I picked the two introverts to have a team meeting on their own. We caught themselves because I wouldn't be able to be there. And it was hilarious. And it was actually, it was a great learning moment for me because they were actually really talking because when you have a whole Zoom and you have a mix of extrovert and introvert, the introverts' voices get covered because they cannot even interject. But when you have two introverts sitting there together and talking about ideas, and I was re reviewing the video, one of them were asking us, who's going to send the notes to Ashley? And then one of the one was like, the illustrator was like, I might as well because we have to send the video. And the other one's like, oops, we were recorded. <laughs> they were recorded, but they were like talking about ideas. And somehow they just got like so intrigued by that. Well, and on that note, thank you so much, Lisa, for such a wonderful chat today. Have a great afternoon and great rest of the week. You too. So great to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you, Lisa. Oh,